Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Listen in so you can know and better understand what's happening here in California. Find out how you can help and get involved and get inspired to break your own ground. We're starting a new monthly series called Food for Thought, in-depth conversations with groundbreakers who run restaurants, farms, bars, breweries, and wineries around California and are shaking up the way we eat and drink. Kicking off tonight is a discussion with restaurant owners in Sacramento who are breaking out of the wheelhouse and doing something different. Andrea Lapore of Hot Italian focuses on pizza, while Ingina and Ian Kavukian of South do down-home Southern cooking. But the three share a common trait. They serve food that's rooted in their childhood and their cultural heritage. They're also branching out into different non-restaurant areas. Lapore is launching a business incubator for food-focused startups. The Kabukians just opened a vintage retail shop, and next up is a social club in their Southside neighborhood. Restaurants are just the starting point. Lapore and the Kabukians now have big plans to better connect with the communities they serve. We're in the auditorium at the Clara Center for the Performing Arts to hear them talk about how they get started, where they're going now, what food means to them, and how they want to change up Sacramento with their restaurants and future endeavors. Welcome everyone to California Groundbreakers. We're an official 501c3 nonprofit based here in Sacramento. A civic engagement organization that is set up to put on events, panels, Q and A's with people who are groundbreakers in the state of California who are doing innovative things in all types of areas, ag, arts, education, environment, policy, politics. We've had 12 events, I believe this is our lucky 13th, and it's actually the first one of a new series of events that we're calling Food for Thought. And the intent is to profile, I think what probably is considered the closest to Sacramento celebrities or rock stars are uh, the people who make the food, the wine, the beer, who serve it up, who farm it, who market it, um, who cook it. So we t we're going to take a look at the people who are uh, doing these innovative things in food, in drinks, beer, wine, cocktails, farming, uh, basically how we eat and drink and how we think about what we eat and drink. So this is the first one of many. The goal is to have this monthly. Um, Probably many of them will be here at this lovely place, the Clara Auditorium, but we're also trying to do um, other venues around Sacramento and ideally maybe, ideally outside the grid, um, like maybe on a farm or maybe at a winery. So I'm working on that. But definitely this is going to be kind of like the test project. I was telling uh, the three here that you're, you're going to be guinea pigs in a way. But we're really excited about this. We got a lot of attention. We got written up in the uh, Sacramento Business Journal and Sacramento News and Review. Thank you very much for that. So I think people here love their food and their drink. And I just thought it would be interesting to have conversations with the people who provide you with the food and the drink. So we're going to kick off here. I wanted to give some special thanks, though, to people who helped make this possible. Uh, first off, to uh, the Clara uh, Center for the Performing Arts. They gave us our uh, venue here, the lovely auditorium. So Megan Wygant, who uh, runs the place, a special thanks to her. I also wanted to thank especially J.E. Pano of Roostaller, who has been a sponsor since the first event. He didn't know anything about California Groundbreakers, but who did, he donated the beer for free. He's been here for every event. We are 
waiting and patiently for his new venue to uh, appear at the end of the year so then we can have events there. So, But I wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you, J.E., for being such a great supporter. Uh, they're not here now, but other uh, great purveyors, Matt Kennedy and Amanda Sanders of The Trade, which is uh, serves coffee on K Street. They're actually a co-working space where I have my office. They've been very helpful, so I wanted to thank them on the podcast as well. Also, the Groundbreaker Advisory Board members who are here tonight wanted to say special thanks to Nicole Grant-Krieg, um, Scott Egger, and Rachel Smith, who are out there signing people up. Uh, <laughs> Rich Beckermeyer, who's taking photos here, and um, also my mom. She's not an advisory board member, but she was serving wine. She also was a philanthropic donor, so thanks, Mom. And of course, to our panelists, I wanted to thank Andrea Lepore. She brought the Salumi. It's excellent and swag. And I think you've been a really big supporter of nonprofits across the board. So I wanted to say special thanks for helping people like me out and the Kavukians also for appearing here. They brought, uh, along with Andrea, great raffle prizes, which we're going to uh, hand out to lucky winners at the end of the event. So I just wanted to remind you, everyone, hold on to those white raffle tickets, because uh, those two over there here are waiting patiently for their chance to raffle off the prizes. So. <laughs> so the format is going to be, um, I'd say it's about an hour long, maybe a little more. I'm going to ask questions first of the panelists, um, probably about 45 minutes or so. I'm going to gauge the how bored you are or how interested you are in lining up. Obviously, you see the mic here in the middle. So when I give you the go ahead, start lining up and, and ask your questions, any or all. Um, and that'll be about 30 minutes. We have a hard stop at 8 p.m. So um, again, it's being recorded for podcast. So just keep that in mind. I would say with the questions, be succinct, especially if there's a line, and if you have a multi-part question, make each part of that question succinct as well so we can get through as many questions as possible. And then, again, the podcast is up. I will upload the podcast. We're going to do it on iTunes and SoundCloud this time. Uh, we have a, um, a new tune for the podcast, which I'm very proud about. I paid a lot of money for it, but it sounds really good. You actually heard it tonight when you were listening and waiting. And, uh, and that's about it. So I don't introduce the panelists. I had them introduce themselves because they know themselves best. But I just basically had them uh, say a couple of few things up front about themselves, obviously their name, where they work. And then for personal note, I was just curious. I feel like for me in the summer, I crave different things, different food. Um, Ashley fried chicken is really what I'm craving now. And, um, and bananas foster for some reason. So I was just curious for each of you, what this summer have you been especially craving? What do you make or prepare for yourself when you get home or you know have someone else make for you? What's, what's that special meal? So let's start with the person on my left. Sure. Um, hi everyone, I'm Andrea Lepore. Um, I'm, excuse me, with uh, Lepore Development, Hot Italian, Solomon's, Delicatessen, the Food Factory. <laughs> Yeah, it's on. <laughs> I know how to turn it on and off. Um, and what do I crave? Uh, usually this, when it's about 100 degrees, I crave rosé. Um, and uh, zucchini and pasta. Next up. 
Hello, everybody. I'm Ian Kavukshin. Uh, I help run South and all of the other stuff we have going on right now. Uh, what do I crave? Tacos constantly and pizza. <laughs> Tacos and pizza. That's, that's basically it. Yeah. Whenever she asks me what I want for dinner, it's one of two answers. Tacos or pizza. Who makes it? Do you or who makes it for you? you uh, order we, out? we both kind of trade on and off. We tend to eat a lot of takeout because we've created a, a chaotic life for ourselves. So usually it's like, shit, we have 30 minutes. We have to feed ourselves and the kids. We forgot to eat today. What are we going to do? We're going to roll over to Hot Italian because we know the kids will eat there. <laughs> yeah. Hello, everyone. My name is Najina Kavukshin. Um, I am co-owner of South. Uh, the Quinn, uh, which is a vintage and new boutique that's around the corner from South, and co-owner of the Good Saint, which is our urban reserve, a.k.a. urban country club, which is uh, in the process of development right now. Um, what I crave constantly, um, I'm going to go with rosé as well, any white wine, uh, that, and... Not gonna lie, I'm on a seafood gumbo kick from our restaurant. I cannot get, I can't stop eating it. It's uh, pretty bad. Um, I'm trying to try different things, um, but I've consistently ate it every day for the past month. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> All right, thanks again for coming. And the reason why I thought, let's, let's pair you three together is because of obviously the food that you have at your restaurants. And it seems like um, this is food that you grew up with, Andrea Pizza. And uh, Najina, I know I've read a lot about how Southern food is something you grew up with. And Ian, I'm sure, you know, you have your own food too. So I was curious about, you know, now that food is such a big part of your you know, day job or your life, how food fit into your childhood and the role it played in your background. You know, when you sat down at the family table, um, you know, what impact did it make that carried it to today what you do? Who would like to start? Andrea. Sure, I'll go. Um, well, actually, um, our, my background really is more on, on the pasta side. So, um, our, I mean, our pizza in the why it's so good is because of my business partner, Fabrizio, that's, so that's, I have no, I can't take credit for that. Um, but growing up, it was my mom's who, sitting over there, is, <laughs> it was my mom's mom, Mary. Of course, every Italian mother is named Mary. Um, <laughs> homemade pasta, homemade meatballs, homemade bread, you know, everything was homemade and, and um, I just, you know, obviously we didn't, because we lived um, in California primarily and they were in Ohio, I didn't get it every day, but um, I mean, I would, when we would go visit there, I would bring back homemade bread and, and my suitcase and, and um, it was just, it was incredible and, and it's, I still try to look for that, that sauce or that bread that tastes just like that and it's, you know, really hard to find unless it's homemade. So who was in Ohio, who, what the, your main family? Yeah, so both my uh, mom's side and my dad's side, both are from Ohio. And what yeah, part? Youngstown. Youngstown, okay. Yep, where all the Italians are. And um, yeah, so they, actually my dad's mother was a great cook as well, and yes, her name was Mary as well. So. <laughs> so. Ian. 
Um, for me, my maternal grandparents, uh, my maternal great-grandparents owned a diner in Pittsburgh, and their advice to uh, the whole family was don't open a fucking restaurant. Um, um, but something that, that we did when I was growing up was every major holiday, we uh, did a big Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner at my grandfather's house. And my mother has four brothers, and there's lots of grandkids, and so it was a huge thing. And my grandfather, who was worked uh, finance on Wall Street, used to say, I don't care uh, what you do for a living, we're all, there's an equal playing field, and it's the dinner table. And it's three times a day that we're all the same. And, uh, and he used to really instill that, that we should all sit down and eat, eat together. And so I have very fond memories of, of food. And, I, and my grandmother was a great cook, but it was just, you know, mashed potatoes and green beans and nothing crazy. But um, it, was the, it was the gathering that was the, the really important thing that stuck with me. And that's what I love to this day when, when, I, when I really am connecting with guests in the restaurant. It's, you know, it's when we're all sitting down together and, and having fun and connecting. When you were saying you, you, uh, your parents ran a diner, the movie that immediately came to mind was Diner by Barry Levinson. I think that came out in the 80s. And I, I think it was set in Baltimore. I wasn't sure if you saw that, but that just kind of, oh, maybe you should. It's, about, it's, it's more about guys who hang out at a diner, but it just seems like that is a character in the movie. So I was wondering how much the, uh, the diner was a character in your growing up. Well, I was I was born in New Jersey, but then grew up uh, lived there till I was nine, and then grew up in Phoenix the other half of my childhood. So that's why I say I love pizza and tacos because that's you know pizza by the slice, New Jersey, and and great pastrami sandwiches, and then Mexican food when I moved to Arizona. So uh, that's why I eat a lot of pizza because I'm disappointed in the sandwich situation right now. <laughs> yes, and I will ask you about that a little later. Uh, and Gina, um, for us. Food and eating was about education. Um, in for me, Southern culture, it was passing down information from generation to generation to generation. So I remember when I was 11 years old, my mom um, coming to get me, and she said, "You know, hey, you're cooking Thanksgiving dinner with me," and I was like, uh, "No," and she was like, "But yes." And um, from 11 on, I learned to cook. And it was always this handwritten recipe. It was an explanation of who the person was that wrote the recipe. It was an explanation of how it had changed over time. So for us, and you know, I could say this about American blacks, when you don't have a lot of history that you can hang on to and know where you came from, that, that was what food was for us, was taking this, these generational stories of food and how we fed people and bringing it to the next generation and then to the next generation. And it was why uh, in our family, especially, it was so important that it, when you were very young, you had to start learning these stories. You had to start learning culinarily your family history and moving that down. And I think for me, that's why I have such emotional ties to what we do at South because it's me taking like that family Bible and being very um, open and vulnerable with our guests about this is who the Guytons and the Quins are. This is our family food and this is what we do. And um, for the, you know, sometimes it gets me in trouble, you know, when somebody complains about something because I take it hyper personal um, because it is that. It's like somebody saying, you know, yo mama to me and I'm like, 
I get a little crazy, but um, that's what like food means to me. I just want people to come in and have the exact same um, emotional response that we had as children every time my mother put a pot roast or fried chicken or gumbo down on the table. Um, and so I hope that we're successful in conveying that to other people. I hope they get those same reactions. Was there a moment when you were, you know, after the Thanksgiving dinner, when th was there was a time when you put something on the table and you were really proud of it, like you added to your family Bible that certain meal or dish that I contributed this to my family? Oh, absolutely. And I think that to the point where our family is very competitive too, so it would get a little crazy sometimes because it's we we argue even today as grown daughters who's going to cook what at certain family events because everybody wants to have like the showpiece like food item um and we all look for our father's um approval in it like anytime you can get my father saying like you know damn girl you put your foot in that like <laughs> it's like damn right i did and <laughs> So that's a compliment. Okay. Yeah, it's a compliment. Yeah, put your, put your foot in it is a compliment. So, um, you know, we, we strive for that, and sometimes it started some fights, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's just friendly competition. All right, so fast forward to, you know, you're grown up, and you're thinking you're fairly certain, all right, I want to start a restaurant that focuses on pizza, southern food. What made you decide that you were the one to do it? What was that impetus that made you like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm the one to do this. Andrea. S yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, um, I actually didn't think I was actually going to open a restaurant. I thought I was gonna help open it, but and now I'm, <laughs> I'm still here. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, back it was 2007 actually when we started working on Hot Italian, and at the time there really wasn't any Italian-style pizza here. It was, you know, round table and I don't know whatever else is here. Um, so yeah, I mean, so I was, you know, helping with the you know the location and the business plan and the brand and 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 whatnot, and um, then my business partner who was Italian, as I mentioned, um, had to go back to Italy, so I was like, oh, wow, I have a, I have a restaurant now. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is fun. Um, but yeah, no, I think at the, you know, at the time, like I said, there, um, there wasn't any Italian pizza. You know, I really, I loved the building, and I wanted it to be uh, green, LEED certified, and, and there wasn't, you know, the city was like, you're nuts, and the landlord was, like you're nuts and and the neighbors were like you're nuts and so I, <laughs> everyone told me i was crazy so um you know here we are nine years later because you're crazy because of the the building itself which is what on the corner of 16th and and q q mm -hmm. that's what made you crazy for opening it there no, or the back well there? yes yes and no i mean yes because at the time I mean, all you know midtown was essentially a block you know it was 18th and l was midtown <laughs> it was literally one block um, and so we were definitely on the outskirts, and no one wanted to claim us, you know. Um, 16th Street was the dividing line, and so um, at the time it was, Steve Cohn was, was on one side, and, and Rob Fong was the other, and then Downtown Partnership was on one side, and Midtown Business Association was the other, and neither of them, like, no one wanted to claim us. They're so like, no, 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 you're, you're part of that side, and like, no, you're part of that side, and I'm like, all right, we're just an island, and 
we'll be fine on our own. So it was, yeah. So we were kind of crazy for that location at the time, and then and then turning you know basically a a dump into a LEED certified building and in into a restaurant that was a retail space before. And this was, uh, I guess, right around the recession hitting, right. or so. How yeah. did that? Yeah, we opened in March of 2009, and the low point of the Great Recession was March of 2009. So it was great. Yeah, it was good timing. Yep. But you're still here. Yep. Congrats. Yeah. Uh, what about you two? What made you decide, especially South? Because I think you've had restaurant experience before, but this we did. We did, but. Um, the food that we're doing at South was actually a funny story. It was uh, our son's first birthday, second, second birthday, and we had, uh, you know, like we typically do, like 50 people over to the house, and we had a keg, and there was a blow-up thing, and everybody was having a really great time. And Najina's mother's <laughs> Patricia was frying chicken. She always fries chicken at every event because everybody loves it, and she, you know, it's delicious, and she gets a kick out of. She loves the the feedback, and people were trying to like eat the chicken right as it came out of the oil. And at the, at the end of the night, just burning themselves. And at the end of the night, and this is right before we were about to open our first restaurant. At the end of the night, she says, you know what y'all should do? Y'all should open a restaurant and sell my fried chicken. And we went, okay, Patricia, you had one too many glasses of wine. <laughs> and then here we are nine years later and we should have listened to her immediately and started frying up her chicken and selling it because people have really, really connected with it. What was the original cuisine that you served before you switched to Petey's Fried Chicken? Well, before we had South, we had a restaurant in Granite Bay called Eight American Bistro. And we did what I think every, um, not every, but a lot of Sacramento-based restaurateurs were doing at the time, which is that California cuisine. And we weren't doing anything that was new. We were just taking the same menu that everybody else had and throwing a different logo on it. And it wasn't anything that we were passionate about. And not to say that the food wasn't good. The food was great. But our hearts weren't in it, and our egos were way too big at the time. And for us, we kind of had to lose everything, which we did. We, we literally lost everything, lost the restaurant, lost the house, lost everything, and had to be, get humiliated, you know? And it is humiliating. When you lose a restaurant and have to close it, it it's embarrassing, it's humiliating, and, but we, ne we needed that. We needed the ego crusher to stop this idea that we were hot shit just because we had worked for the Paragarys, you know? That, like, that was silliness that we even, had that type of mentality and that humbleness got us to go back to the basics what is it that we innately do what is it that takes no effort for us to do because it is just organic in how we operate every day and that party was my son's birthday party was a big part of that you know just watching the joy of everybody's faces you know getting third degree burns as they're pulling chicken out of the fryer before it's it hasn't even rested and you know, that day, we, my mother and I fried chicken. We fried 400 pieces of chicken that day because we, we started counting at one point because we kept having to go to the store to get more chicken, brine it, and fry it. And so it was one of those things that if, if at the end of the day of not even being able to participate in my son's birthday party, but having people come to us and being in a, this kitchen with my mother and cooking, 
there was, I wasn't exhausted and I wasn't irritated and I wasn't mad. And at the end of the day, I felt more fulfilled by it. Then why isn't, we aren't doing this from jump. And that's, that was kind of the, the light bulb turned on and we decided let's try this one more time. And if it works, then good. And if it doesn't, then we'll go get that nine to five state job, you know, but let's take one more risk and see if we can do this. And a lot of people that have been to South, especially when we first opened, um, it, I mean, South was raw. It was no art on the building. It was janky tables. It was boom box music. Like it was no air conditioning. Like that first summer, people thought that we had no air conditioning on purpose so that we could recreate what it felt like in the South. <laughs> and we were like, no, we just, we're fucking poor. <laughs> like, <laughs> air conditioning's 10 grand. So, um, but it was just one of those things that we were just going to give it one more chance. And if people reson it resonated with people, then we were going to do it. So when did you officially open South? Uh, December 16, 2014. And it was the, one of the most nerve wracking nights of my life. We had, we had, uh, we had, we had $25,000 that we had saved and we had some tables and chairs and silverware and plateware left. And we found a great lease in Southside Park where we live. And we came down to two weeks before we were going to open and we didn't have enough money to open. And we were just so crushed by everything. <clears throat> and we said, how, you know, we, we did a, a crowdfunding campaign Indiegogo and we gathered up $4,700 from people that believed in us. And it was enough for us to do two pop-up dinners, um, which by the way, uh, what's his name from Sunfish? Nguyen. Nguyen, we, we, we went to Nguyen at Sunfish to buy some seafood for a pot of gumbo we were gonna do. And I told him, I said, I have $300 budget. Please give me all the seafood you can. And he gave us $500 worth of, worth of seafood and didn't charge us for it. And just said, use it. And uh, we did our two pop-up dinners, and that put us up over. We were actually able to open, and just by, like by the skin of our teeth. I mean, it was we were up at midnight going, "Fuck, can we pull this off?" <laughs> and, and we did. And I remember we had to we had to make two thousand dollars a shift mm -hmm. to break even with labor and taxes and everything. And that first shift we did twenty two hundred dollars, and I mean it was like. Christmas morning. It was like the best feeling that, oh my God, maybe we can pull this off. And then, you know, yeah, like, oh, we might actually be able to eat this week. And then it was, and then it was the, the next month, you know, we would hit $3,000 and we've been growing and we've now we're to the point where we're having trouble with the space that we're in, you know, and so we're so lucky that, and so happy and blessed to be where we're at. So I feel like you, you two are, are great examples of just uh, you know, starting and hitting the ground running and you getting a lot of community just supporting you right off the bat. Uh, I feel like I keep hearing the statistic that, and you can correct me, one out of every five restaurants, two out of every five restaurants or something like restaurants, more than half the restaurants fail in two years or five years. It's a really tough business, obviously. So I was wondering about, uh, Ian, you kind of led into my next question about, you know, lessons you learned along the way of opening up the restaurant, whether you had to change something based on, you know, whatever permits or state or customer feedback, something where you thought, wow, I never thought about that, but it makes sense. Or, well, I thought about it this way, but I'm going to change 
it this way because that's what people want. So just a couple of important lessons you learned as you started between now and then about being a restaurateur. Andrea? I don't think, um, actually we didn't really change anything. It was more of the opposite, like staying true to your your business plan. And I mean, if you read the business plan that was written 10 years ago, it's really everything that's in there we've done. Um, and it's you know, having faith in, in, in your plan because um, they're, they're written for a reason and not being swayed by, oh, because people come in and they want pasta or they want you know, something else. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love South. It's like, this is what we do and we do it really well. And we're not gonna add some other crazy thing to our menu because someone wants that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not really changing. I mean, we've tweaked things here and there, of course, but, um, but yeah, I mean, our, we are still serving basically the same menu since we've opened. So it's, it seems like instead of, a, like the menu stays the same, and you may expand, because you have one in Davis, right? Mm -hmm. And in Berkeley, Emeryville? Yep, Emeryville. Mm -hmm. So that is more where the change would be in terms of locations? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we had we had quite a few offers to open in, in some suburban areas and, and around Sacramento, and, and I just I believed in in the brand and being a really urban, transit-oriented um, brand, and, and didn't want to be in a location where you had to drive to to get to it. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it, I mean, there's lots of lessons I've learned along the way, but not necessarily things that I've changed. It's more like things that I've learned that. I won't do next time or will do differently next time. Um, yeah, so. And what about you two in terms of lessons you learned for the restaurant? Because then I'm going to move into the next ventures for you all. But what have you learned since you started South? Well, uh, I was going to say since 8 American Bistro, we learned all our lessons the hard way. So yeah, 8 American Bistro just beat us up and we did everything wrong. And it was, and it was, I'm glad that we did because that was how we had to learn it. So we spent too much money. We had, our egos were too much in it. You know, the wine list was incredible. We had beautiful wines on there, but I wasn't playing to the neighborhood. You know, we were in Granite Bay, so people wanted Rambauer Chardonnay. And the Chardonnay that I had on there was beautiful from France, but nobody understood it and connected to it. And so I had all this wine that didn't sell. I had $10,000 worth of wine that I couldn't sell. So at some point I had to say, you know what? Take your ego out of it. Like, what, what, like, are we, do we want to make money? I mean, yeah, we want to make money. We have two kids we want to put through college. So, all right, let me, let me get over it and sell Rombauer, you know? And we did, and we started selling it. And we don't necessarily do that at South. Um, but with South, I'm not putting, like, we didn't put any, like, pretentious wines on the list. It's like we knew, we knew that we're a counter service restaurant. People are coming in and looking to spend 15 bucks. So when my vendors come in, they're like, I want to taste you on the Chardonnay. I'm like, how much is it? And they're like, it's $14 a bottle. I'm like, sorry, it's too expensive. I can't sell something for more than $9 a glass. You know, bring me something that's, that's reasonably priced and that's delicious. And I'll taste through a thousand wines if I have to, to put that one Chardonnay that's on there that I can sell at $7 a glass that's, you know, rad and that people will connect with, so. I think something that Andrea touched on was about how she said she doesn't want to go into certain locations. And that is key. And I, it, again, people say, oh, you should open a South here and here and here and here. And again, um, in our dwindling days when we were in Granite Bay, we tried the South menu there and it just failed miserably. And then we closed up shop and left. And, and I think that 
the location and the demographics in the neighborhood that surrounds you is so important to, I mean, they say it all the time, location, 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 but it's, it's also about the neighborhood, those people that are there that um, are going to support the business um, and being receptive towards that. And I think that being, for us, being in Southside Park, um, we have such amazing neighborhood support. And I can say that having opened open businesses in other neighborhoods now that Southside Park, I just, I can't with y'all. I love that park so much. I love that neighborhood so much. The people there and the surrounding neighborhoods have been so amazing in making sure that we're taken care of. And not just coming in and making sure that, you know, once every two weeks they come in and they get something to eat, even if it's just an appetizer and a glass of wine, but that, you know, they'll stop us and say, oh, we saw somebody looking through your trash. We took a picture of their license plate for you, you know? <laughs> so it's just that you, that they, uh, when it comes to, uh, and I don't want to generalize, but when it comes to a lot of urban areas where, you know, the midtowns and the downtowns of the United States of America, there is more of a sense of supporting the small business as opposed to the chain feeder and the big box store. And that's where you can get lost. You know, when you're opening out there, that's where if you're not the Chevys, the Chili's, the, the Buca de Beppos, you're just going to get lost. And you're not going to get that support because I just feel in, in, you know, those areas, it's, there's not the support for the, the small business owner that they, not that they don't care, but it's just not on their radar too. And in Midtown and Downtown, it is on their radar. They wanna support small business. They don't wanna see these big chain feeders come in. And you see it all the time when they talk about the arena and all these big restaurant groups coming in and big retail groups coming in and people are like, no, absolutely not. And so, you know, I think that's what allows us to be able to do what we do is because we're in a place where our customer clientele allows us to just be free and create the menu we want to create, do the style of service we want to do, no questions asked, we're not going to push it. We might ask you, and if you say no, you said no, that's it. You know, it, it's, and I think that's just wonderful about this area. So I guess for those in the audience and podcast listeners who, who may not know where the South Side Park is, but I guess the boundaries are, where would they be? First. Sixth Street, it goes all the from, way to I-5, uh, I guess? I yeah, I would say from uh, even th from 3rd. 3rd Street? Yeah, 3rd to the XY Bridge to right about maybe 13th Street. So kind of like that south. Technically, it's 16th, isn't it? Doesn't it go all the way to 16th? Is that where? Sure. Southwest uh, Quadrant, I guess, of yeah. the grid? Yeah. Okay. And then you are where? Where's your, your intersection is? Uh, 11th and T Street. 11th and T. So for whoever is listening or wants yeah, to I go. I think it goes from Binchiaki to South. Yes. yes. That's <laughs> yep, that's it. <laughs> that's, 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 that's it's right in the middle, too. <laughs> so now I wanted to move into, well, I have one question that's going to segue into the future projects that you all are are focusing on but design is a big it's a big uh part of i think of what you all are doing so andrew had a specific question about design for you because i know that's such a big part of hot italian and your previous background so i guess for for you sustainable design how do you how do you how did you integrate that into hot italian how did you 
say, I want to make this a focus of what I'm doing besides the food and other projects? You know, how important is the design and sustainability? Sure. Um, well, I don't even remember what year it was. Whenever year um, Inconvenient Truth came out, and I saw that and was like, <laughs> so scared. I was like, oh my God, we're all dying. <laughs> so, um, and I wanted to do something about it, even though, you know, I couldn't like change the world, but, you know, I could change it in my little space and, and you know, doing research on um, climate change and, and finding out that, you know, really urban locations are really more of a cause of it than rural locations. And I, but wanting to open in a rural, uh, urban location, it's like, okay, so if I'm going to open here, I need to do what I can for this this little spot here. Um, and so with, with Hot Italian, we, I designed it to be LEED certified and incorporated a lot of, um, obviously, green measures, not only from the building standpoint, but operationally. Um, and then was, you know, wanted to do more of that. And so I went back to school and got my master's at uh, Boston Architectural College in, in sustainable design. And, you know, really um, incorporating some of those things that are all now being destroyed by the current EPA person. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and no, I think there's, you know, little things that, that we can all do to make a difference in, in, in how we get to places and how we, where we shop and, and what we choose to eat and, and um, as simple things as turning your lights off. So does that, <laughs> the sustainable design, go into the kitchen, into the... From an operation yeah. standpoint, yeah, definitely, yeah. We, I mean, at Hot Time, we have our earth tub composter, and, and our pizza boxes are made locally here by American Packaging, um, where typically pizza boxes are made either in China or Mexico, and I thought that was stupid. To, I mean, pizza boxes are stupid anyway, because they use them for like 15 minutes, and then they're gone. Um, but it was even more stupid to ship them all the way from China and then use them for 15 minutes and then throw them away. Um, so yeah, so I, I try to you know, look at everything that we, that we do from the napkins to the pizza boxes to everything um, and you know, like getting rid of all the stupid sugar packets and straws and all of that. Um, and then you know, with Solomon's Delicatessen, obviously trying to you know, um, incorporate as many of those elements as well and, and as well as at the food factory. So yeah, so let's segue into the next projects because uh, I have to say on Sunday, South was closed, but I went to the Quinn, which is the retail shop that uh, opened in December. And actually the sign that is there by the side door leading everyone into the auditorium, I bought on Sunday at the Quinn and it's a little chalk stand. So that's what I, I made a purchase. But I thought that was interesting about you know the design of that store is very cool. There's a mix of old and new, and I, I think someone there at the desk told us that uh, Najina's mom is like the the basically the the retailer there. So I was curious in terms of design. I think I read that that's a big part of South too. It's not maybe high end, but you use design in a very unique way for South and apparently through other ventures. So I'm questioning now for you guys, how much does design play a part in uh, your restaurant and future ventures? How important is it? I, I think it's definitely for us, um, it's a huge part of what we do. Um, I remember the first time that we went into Hot Italian, like literally we walked around for 10 minutes just looking at stuff. <laughs> we were like, look at that fan. 
look at that table. The table's scratched in. We should do that shit at home. Like, <laughs> and it was just, it was beautiful. And for us doing what we do at South and the design that we have at South and the, and, and at the Quinn and, um, my background, I mean, we didn't, we weren't, we weren't wealthy. We didn't have a lot of money. Um, my mother, she calls the process of going to like Goodwills, she called it junking. And I don't know if she did that so that we would feel better about it when we went and bought things from the Goodwill. Um, but she just has this, my mom's a, um, an artist and she has an amazing eye and she can, she loves, it, it pains her to buy anything new. She loves to buy something old or recycled and give it new life. And that's how we grew up. I mean, every prom dress, homecoming dress I had came from the Goodwill. She just redesigned it. Our home, the majority of the furniture came from a secondhand store. And she, you know, spray painted it or reupholstered it or changed it in some way that gave it um, value so that it looked more expensive than it was. And so kind of what we're doing with South is, I mean, with South, it truly was we were broke. And it was like, how can we put lipstick on this pig and make people want to stay here to sit and eat? And and as we, you know, are get more financially stable, we start bringing in, you know, nicer things. And I think at South, it's more for the reason of um, we need it to last because we burn through like dining chairs in probably a month and a half and we have to buy all new ones just because of the how busy it is. But with the Quinn, I wanted to make sure that you got this feeling of luxury when you walked into the store. Like, it, you, it, for lack of a better word, like a broke-ass anthropology. I wanted you to walk in and it feel rich, but as you start looking at price tags of things, you're like, oh, well, I'm going to get... 17 of these then, you know, and, and, and taking recycled things. And sometimes when we go out and we go junking and we find things, um, just rehabbing it a little bit or sometimes a lot and then putting it out on the floor and people are, you know, Oh my, it's only 30 bucks for this stool. And I'm like, yeah, girl, I got that out of the trash, cleaned it up and spray painted it. So, you know, they, they look at it and they think it's amazing, but it's the, the majority of the stuff are these recycled things. Um, it drives Ian crazy because before we had the Quinn, he thought what my problem was is that I was a hoarder. And I psychically knew that I was just saving up for inventory for a retail store I was going to open one day. Because I was going to ask, it seems like the restaurant just takes so much time. So having a separate venture that's different, uh, is that a creative outlet or just like, Ian, you're just, okay, run with it. How, how do you? Every, everything takes time. The kids take time. Our relationship takes time. The restaurant takes time. The Quinn takes time. And it's all worth it. You, just, you have to say, what's, what's, what do I want in my life? And then you make it happen. You know? Um, <clears throat> The thing that scares me is when I get the phone call that's like, hey, babe, can you meet me at the corner of Madison and something? So I'm like, why? And she's like, uh, and bring the truck. Uh, and can you, can you stop by the bank and get 100 bucks? And I'm like, what now? She's like, listen, it's a hutch, and I think maybe it'll fit. I'm like, oh. And then I'm screwing new doors on it and sanding it for two weeks and painting it. And then eventually it's awesome. Here's the thing, and this is why I love this band is... I'm the creative 
I'm the one that has the dreams that just don't stop. They actually, I stay awake at night thinking of new things to do, but he's the one that makes it happen. So I'm the one that's like, okay, this is what I want to do. I found a piece of property on B Street. It totally looks like shit, but I swear to God, we can make it wonderful. I need you to bring your toolkit. And he makes it beautiful. So it's, it's a great partnership of the dreamer and the actual creator. So thanks, babe. <laughs> it's a good business partnership and personal. So one reason that, one, that, that your name stuck together was the mention in the Bee in the Business Journal earlier this year about Jewish delis. And it sounds like there's diff it's in different um, project time frames right now for both of you. Um, but Andrew, I wanted to start with you because Solomon's is pretty much you can drive by and it's almost there. Um, <laughs> not I was <quite>. wondering, <laughs> not quite, it always takes longer. I mean, the building's there. I what's, mean, the shell is what's there. What's the ETA right now? Or? Um, kind of depends on when we get the space from the overall developer because they're doing the apartments that are the whole block behind us and then there's, you know, the entire row of uh, for our buddy J.E.'s going as well. Is it, and where's, the, it's the corner um, of? Eighth and K. Okay. Yep. So are you Jewish? I'm not, but so we're, Italians are pretty much the same. Italians are Jewish. So, so yeah, I, was, I guess a few of us were wondering how did, it's because Jewish delis is like, for people who lived or grew up in the East Coast, you know, Jewish deli is right. like, ah. Uh. So how did you get on board and what was the decision like, yeah, we're the ones to bring a really good Jewish deli to Sacramento? Well, I was um, actually in the fortunate position to be the one of the chosen ones. So the, we call them the, the deli ladies. Two of them are here, Lydia and Jamie. And you're and they're with the Jewish Festival, the Jewish food fair. Food, food fair. Yep, they've been putting on this every year in Sacramento. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And we will we will pro <laughs> we will promote that on the website. So I was in introduced to them luckily by um, Elaine Korn, another deli lady, and um, um, I think originally the plan was for me to operate the the deli, and, and I was like. I'm trying to get out of the operations. I really don't want to do that, but I love delis. So yeah, love to help out and, and be involved. And that was two years ago, three years ago. Wow. Three years ago now. Yeah. So, um, what I guess are, what's going to be the rock star or one of the rock star dishes that you can just guarantee when we go in to eat, it's like, it, this is going to be the bomb. Well, it dep <laughs> depends on who you ask. <laughs> okay. What about you? I mean, I mean, for for Jamie, it's gonna be the the liver, chopped <laughs> liver. That's no, that's a that's a requisite in Jewish diet. Yes. Okay. For Lydia, it's probably gonna be the matzo ball soup. Um, for me, I don't actually eat pork anymore. I mean, uh, don't eat beef anymore. But I mean, I love pastrami and corned beef, and, and um, Emil Formoli is our chef, and, and I'm sure you're all familiar with Formoli's, and, and, and Vinny's there now, Lazaretto. Um, it's, uh, Emil's awesome, so every, every week he's, you know, creating um, sort of his version of kind of classic dishes, and, and we did a tasting again last Monday, and, and you know, the egg salad was really good, and, and some original schmears that he's working on, and, and it's all really good. So, and I'm excited about breakfast all day because who oh, doesn't yeah. love that? Great. Now, there's been a lot of media attention that there was a Jewish deli, the proletariat, that was opening up 
uh, around the corner from South. Where does that stand, or what's the what's the plan? First off, it was never planned to be a Jewish deli. <laughs> okay. Uh, because I'm from New Jersey and half my family's Jewish, it, we just got thrown in the Jewish deli category. Just rumor, rumor has well, it. Well, Carla Meyer was coming in interviewing Nagina about the Quinn and said, you know, what are your plans next? And she said, oh, we're going to open a deli and, you know, do Ian's family food. And she said, well, what, you know, what's Ian's family food? And, and Nagina said, well, you know, he's a, he's a New Jersey Jew. And so instantly, <laughs> Jewish deli. Yeah. Uh, no, no plans on matzo ball soup. I'm going to come over there to eat. <laughs> um, but I've, I've part, part of something that's missing in Sacramento for me is a sandwich the way that I grew up with it. And it's not just the sandwich itself, but it's how you get it and where you get it from and who you get it from. And uh, it just, to me, it doesn't exist. In, 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 at least I haven't found it in California. It very well could be somewhere, but I have not found it. And, uh, and I miss that. You know, I haven't been back to Jersey in a, in a long time, and, and most of my family's from there, and, and there's just something that's always been missing in my life because of that. So when South became successful and we reached a point where we said, hey, we can actually financially do some other projects, what do, what do we want to do? I'm always complaining that I can't get a great sandwich in town. So we said, let's just do it. Let's open a spot where we can do a, a great, get a great sandwich. And we love Southside Park. We were looking to, uh, we, we often say, what, what would we like to see out of our neighborhood? You know, what, what do we want more of? It's part of the, the inspiration to open the retail store and definitely part of the inspiration to eventually open a deli. Um, we have a lot of straight workers, we have a lot of residential, we have a lot of people that, that support us that I know that would like a great sandwich. So, uh, so we, started to come, we started to develop the idea and we have, it's definitely uh, in development, uh, but we're kind of putting a pause on it. Yeah, especially once, once started, people started saying Jewish deli and we felt like peop, the, some of the media was trying to pit us against Solomon's and we both come from uh, the standpoint that there's, it's the, like, there's room for everybody. The more the merrier. You know, I, I, I feel like if there's two delis that are within walking distance of each other, that that's great because they might do a better pastrami than me and I might pickle a better pickle than them or something, you know, and, and, and we can have guests that are walking back and forth and it's just going to be, it's going to be mutually beneficial for everybody in the neighborhood. So as soon as the media started doing that, we went radio silent. We literally looked at each other one night and said, we're not talking about it anymore until, we're, until we find the location and we're ready to do it. We were potentially going to do it in, our, in the building that we own that we live upstairs of. We're not sure if we're going to do that yet, so we're just kind of hanging out. We're going to go eat some sandwiches at Solomon's. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have some matzo ball soup because it's probably been 20 years since I've had a good matzo ball soup. So, and, then, uh, and then we'll see where we're at with that. Because right now you're focusing on the good saint. And, yes. I, and I remember from the, an email that Najina uh, sent me earlier this week uh, describing that. I, th I think I remember Social Club or something, and there was the business journal story that showed the outside of this you know, very colorful building that looked like it needed work, but it sounded like an interesting concept. So what's, what's the Good Saint planning to be? The Good Saint is going to be, um, for lack of a better word, an urban country club. So we kind of took a look at um, our lives. We took a look at other restaurateurs who are in the industry, um, other friends that we have, and um, took a look at how we need to relax in 2017. Um, because the thing that I think drives me crazy is when you go out to a function or a dinner or whatever, 
and everybody is glued into their phone and people aren't talking and people aren't connecting and not that it's the business's job to do that, whether it's a restaurant or a bar or whatever, to get them off their media. But I think a lot of businesses are so like they're media whores where it's like checking on Instagram and follow us on Twitter and blah, blah, blah on Facebook. And they're so crazy about people making sure that they document the experience, that they're not even in the experience. And I just, we couldn't do that anymore. And so that's what The Good Saint is. The Good Saint is a place where we can say, put that phone down. Let us spoil you. Come in. Go get something to eat or we will bring it to you. What do you want to drink? Go take a yoga class. You done with yoga? Go jump in the pool. Would you like to listen to some live music? We've got a show going on. You want to play a game of pool after that? Or do you just want to lay on the lawn and just look up at the sky? So it's Any opening? (laughs) (laughs) This weekend, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Just for you, we will. So it's creating this urban country club that it will have a membership, it'll have day passes, but um, it's a space where we can also vet the people that are coming in to make sure that everybody's on the same page about relaxation. We don't want to have a space that's this super crazy, bro-y, wild, like we're doing shots and it's out of control. Like that's not what we're about. I think for me especially, I'm old, I'm tired. I don't want to party like that anymore. And I want my relaxation to be very thorough. I need it to be very thorough because of the life that I lead. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that there are other people in Sacramento that lead these crazy, overscheduled, hectic lifestyles where we don't have a minute to just stop and unplug and allow someone else to take care of you in more ways than just sliding a plate of food in front of you. And so that's kind of what we were, were hoping to do with The Good Saint. Let me back you up a little bit. So the good, the good Saint started as we've been catering weddings for a long time now. And we, we, there's, there's, a, there's a big group of brides that can't, get afford, that can't afford to get married in Sacramento. Uh, some site fees could be $5,000 just for the site. That's not food, booze, anything else involved with it. So we, we were constantly having to find creative ways for our brides to, okay, you're getting married in grandma's backyard, cool, we're gonna make that work, there's nowhere for us to cook, so we're cooking in the street, and we're doing whatever we could. So we had said a long time ago that wouldn't it be rad to have a event space in Sacramento where it didn't cost $5,000 for it. So that was what started the look for, when we were looking for the good saint. And then when we found the space, we were starting that process of let's just open an event space. Then the neighborhood that we're in decided to try and um, have a say in how we run our business. And so then we, we morphed it into, you know, everything's kind of organic with our process. It's, we don't, we, like, we've never really just been like, this is what we're going to do from A to Z, and then we pull it off. Like for us, it's always been, we think we have an idea, let's aim toward it, and then we get there and it's totally different. And maybe it works or maybe it doesn't. And right now the Good Saints morphed into 
not just a country club, but I like to describe it as the coolest backyard that nobody has in Midtown. <laughs> so a place that you can come, go for a swim, play a game of pool, bring some friends, get something to eat, get something to drink, relax, get away from your life, whatever. So it's, it's kind of a weird, it's hard to describe to people because there's nothing like it in town. So it's... A min- see a mini concert, maybe see a movie on the lawn. There's not... Um, I tried to look around the state for places that were like what we're trying to do for inspiration, and I unfortunately haven't found one yet. So we're kind of going by the seat of our pants um, about how we're going to do this. But I think... I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Everybody likes to go swimming. <laughs> Everybody likes smoked meats. <laughs> Everybody likes alcohol, unless you're, you know, recovery. And people like to relax. So we're going to provide that in one spot. And exactly what it's going to be like in a couple of months when we open, not quite sure. And it's not rosé by the pool. Yeah. Yeah. Hella rosé <laughs> by the pool. <laughs> and it's in a different part of uh, Midtown, right? It's not in Southside Park. Where is it? Um, going we, to be? It's on B and 26th Street. So we tried to open it in Southside Park. Um, it's been part of the reason why we have been media silent. Because um, in the past, we've tried to create this concept in different places, um, working with other people, and ideas have been taken. And because there are a lot of people that have more money than this, they've been able to open it quicker, better, faster. Um, so we were super silent about The Good Saint. We didn't want to talk about it. We didn't want any media on it. We didn't want to explain to people what it was about until we got really close to opening. And, um, you know, we just had our third annual Crawdad Festival, which is called Sass and Swagger. We do it every year. South hosts it. And we did it at The Good Saint. And that was kind of our opportunity to say, okay, now we can talk about it. Everybody come onto the property, see what it's about. And, um, and it was an off, you know, an opportunity for us to do some R and D, engage um, people's uh, reaction to the space and how they felt about it, and what maybe they were looking for out of the property as well. So I have one last question, and then I'm gonna have you who have questions go up to the mic and ask Ian and Gina and Andrea. But Andrea, I wanted to ask about the food factory because that is you know your ambitious project. It sounds really interesting. So. Describe your vision, what you what you see, and uh, it sounds like there's a fair amount of money to raise, but uh, how how is it coming along, and what do you want it to be? Sure. Um, so the food factory is, uh, for lack of better, like a full business plan explanation, it's a food incubator for small food businesses. Um, it's located at 15th and C, and the uh, property owner is Skip Rosenblum, and, and he's awesome business partner because he's really um he loves the concept and he's been holding on to this building for actually the entire property really for gosh six years now i think and he bought it uh, about six years ago not kind of knowing what to do with the property and and um he's had lots of offers to basically bulldoze it and build housing and and um, but he's really committed to the project and and um it's been really fun working with him so it's um, basically, a, the space that we're focusing on first is about 36,000 square feet. Um, one wing would be the shared kitchen side, um, and then there's a like a shared cold, dry, um, cold storage 
area prep, and then an area for um, individual kitchens like gluten-free, meat, dairy, some of the other items that have to be separated for allergens and whatnot. So it was something I actually started working on when I was doing my thesis, and because um, we all you know, really want local food, but these makers are struggling, and they're working in their kitchens at their houses, and, and they're not able to, you know, really t to produce um, a sustainable business. They can't buy the right, you know, products at the at the right price, and they don't have the storage, and they don't have any way to collaborate with people. And, and you know, there's about 200 of these around the country, and and none here. And we, you know, claim that we're farm to fork capital, but we don't have one, so we really need one. So yeah, it's been a fun project, and, and we're um, I think finally have a, a path to completion. We're going to form a CDC, which is a community development corporation, so that'll serve as the, as a developer and, and be a nonprofit. And um, we're hoping you know probably an 18 month time frame. So you're taking applications from people who. We have, a, yeah, we have a website, uh, norcalfoodfactory.com. People can fill out uh, the information uh, sheet there. And uh, we will do some design charrettes as, as we get further along to get input. But there's been a lot of interest from local makers that, again, like I said, are, again, are you know, making products out of their houses and, and not the most efficient efficient way. And, and with food products, just like restaurants, you know, our, our margins are so, so thin. So any any way you can get an advantage and, and cut your overhead uh, makes a big difference. All right, I know, I know some of you have to have questions. Someone, I will buy a drink for the first person who goes up to the mic. So, um, but why, what made you decide? That sounds like a big project. It's like $5 million that you have to raise to put this together. Right. Okay, come see me after <laughs> with your drink. So what, that just sounds like, whoa, that's, big, but did you just, you know, you had the impetus, hot Italian experience just, or personal experience made you I think, mean, basically, I I like done? eating good food. I mean, really. I mean, it's like you go to the grocery store, you go to the co-op, for instance, and, and you see Janet McDonald's um, jam called Good Stuff, and her jam, you know, she has to charge $9, $10 for, a, you know, a little jar of jam, and it's not because she's raking in all this money, it's because that's what she has to charge because she's buying the jars at the least amount, you know, that she can store in her house. And, and, and so in order for these small makers to compete against these, you know, the, the big food people, um, they have to cut down their overhead, and that's really the only way to do it. And, and you know, when you're shopping at, at you know, co-op and, and you see these products and you see Janet's jam at nine bucks or ten bucks and then you see maybe Cascadian Farms it's four dollars it's like mm, you know well maybe I'll pay two more dollars but I'm not going to pay five or six more dollars for a jar so I mean I love local food and local products and I you know just like with the deli I mean we we need to um, honor traditions and, and, and keep these things going or else they're going to disappear so there's got to be other ways for us to um, keep these, you know, traditions going. So that's really why. Again, because I want to eat good food. It's a selfish reason, but yeah, right. bringing yeah. things down to scale yeah. too for right. price-wise. Great. Yeah. Next question from the audience. Hello, um, I am from the tech industry, so I deal with the word innovation quite a bit, and food being such a um, attachment to history, to actually the touching, the feeling. Technology doesn't seem to play a big part, but what does food innovation mean to you? 
That's a good question. Who wants to take that first? And Gina? Um, I don't know if I'll answer this correctly, but I'm going to try. I think for us, um, food innovation is um, pushing the envelope of tradition. So, like, our little slogan on our thing is um, tradition reinvented. And when it comes to maybe the history of what Southern food is and the way that it's created, m food innovation, I guess, for us is when we say we'll take these uh, foundations and how far can we push it in a technical term or uh, an introduction of another culture into Southern food um, that might not be traditional, um, and how is that received? And I think maybe one of the dishes that is that we have that might be like that would be um, the fetti, fettuccine, we call it Fetty J. Um, it's the fettuccine jambalaya. And for a lot of um, Southern purists, they're like, why is that on pasta? Because it should be on rice. Um, and we say, because fettuccine's good. And why not take these two cultures and kind of blend it? And then maybe, I know with like, when we created, like if you see our menu, it has old school and new school is how the menu's broken up. And for the new school, it's uh, with a lot of people, and I don't know why, Southern food is very hard for them to wrap their, mount, their mind around. It's hard for them to eat it. And so we created the new school side as a way to bring them into Southern food and then to have them try other things that maybe they weren't, they were a little scared to try. So I don't know if I'm answering that correctly, but as far as innovation for us is, is the marriage of cultures with Southern food. Because Southern food itself, by definition, it's, it's French, it's Native American, it's Af West African, um, it's Caribbean. It's this beautiful mix of all of these different cuisines. And for a long time, it's just kind of been those, those um, different areas. Uh, to be able to bring in other cultures um, and have like a Japanese flair or, you know, my, uh, our chef was just like, I want to take the okra and I think I want to do it tempura style. And I'm like, well, look at you. Okay. So I think for us is just stepping outside of this like Southern box and taking risks with making marriages with other cultures um, to make it, I don't know if it makes it more approachable, but it definitely makes it more fun. And we're not doing the same old thing over and over and over again. Because I love Southern food, but I think at some point you just can't make a bigger, batter dish because it is what it is. So I know in terms of tech, uh, something that's helped us huge is we use Square as our point of sale system. And it's, it was out of necessity that we needed something that was cheap and readily available. And something that's nice is uh, anybody that's ever worked in a restaurant and the power's gone out, and you can't run a credit card. Uh, I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember the knuckle buster, where you'd have to put the, the carbon paper on and, and slide it across. So as soon as the power goes out in a restaurant, you'd have your crash kit, which was usually behind in the manager's office under the desk. And the power would go out, and it was total shit storm. And somebody would run back there and get the knuckle buster out. And then every 
guest in the restaurant would have to, you'd have to, you know, make the carbon copy, and then as soon as the power came back on as a manager, you'd be sitting there for four hours to enter them all into the system manually and, and process their credit card, and that was challenging uh, with what our system that we have right now because it's an iPad. So it's got a battery backup. So the power goes out, Wi-Fi goes out, no big deal. You can still swipe your credit card, and eventually when the Wi-Fi comes back on, it dumps all those credit cards in there. So that just took that out of the equation now. So tech is wonderful when it comes to that. That is, I'm so grateful that it, 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 you try to describe it to the young staff members, and like, you ever use a knuckle buster? And they're like, that sounds like torture. It's like, yeah, it was. Like, you know. So tech has played a, a big role in, in how we run things nowadays. It's also sometimes a hindrance, too. You know, I know that uh, our music systems run on Wi-Fi. So as soon as the Wi-Fi goes out, guess what? There's no music. And there's been plenty of panic attack where they're calling me and they're like, it, it, the Wi-Fi's out. There's no music. What am I supposed to do? And I'm like, oh, shit. You know, it's not like we can just put a record on. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, so. I think on that same thing, too, is the one tech that I, I don't want to say I hate because I use it every week it just doesn't work for us, is just the food on demand. And that is the, the Postmates, the caviar, the, the, all of those things. And I'm not going to lie, I'm probably caviar's best customer. <laughs> they got a lot of money from me. Uh, there are some days where I'll order from caviar three times a day. Um, for us, it doesn't work just because of how we are, our operation, it just, we can't do it. But this kind of marriage of, of being able to have food delivered to you. All I have to do from my phone is just pick the menu items and hit send and my credit information is already there and it comes to me all the time. And I'm not gonna lie, the two places that I order caviar from all the time is Hot Italian and uh, Thai Canteen. You guys have got a lot of our money. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, in that sense, it's, it, it, it is pretty amazing what you could do compared to, I remember being, um, 22 in San Francisco at my friend's apartment and she was like oh let's order out and in San Francisco back in the day they had that big book the the phone book and you rolled all the way to the back and it was like 40 pages plus of restaurants and you'd have to go through and like pick which category and then you know scroll down like Jesus <laughs> these kids got a good now and tech plays a huge part of restaurants being able to get out to different um you know areas where they might not have been accessible and for people that can't leave a job site where they're at like when i'm at the quinn i can't leave the quinn but the food can come to me and that's nice that's real nice how receptive uh, playing on that question about innovation how receptive is sacramento to innovation in food be it the menu or the technology or a new concept. How, what do you guys think about us as being receptive to what you want to offer? Well, people, uh, when we first opened Hot Italian, people were scared of the communal tables. So I was like, oh, I don't wanna, I'm not with them. I don't wanna sit by them. Um, so yeah, I'm not, not really. Um, but I don't know, I mean, I think that, I mean, going back to the previous question, I think innovation is one of those things that may be a little overused and, and like disrupting and, and all these tech terms that, um, I don't know, I mean, I, I think to me it's either it's either good or it's not. And like a lot of these, you know, restaurants in the Bay Area, it's like, oh, we have foam on our plate now, or we have like this fake meat that 
is still super processed and, and um, I don't know, I just like I said, it is either good or not. I mean, I was down in San Diego last week and went to, um, you guys may have heard of the Crack Shack, um, and I had, you know, it's matzo ball pozole, and yes, it's not traditional, but yet it was really good. I mean, it was good quality ingredients, and, and it was great, and the fried chicken was really good, and, and, and again, it wasn't traditional or classic, but they used really good quality ingredients, and, and so what, I'm not sure if that's innovative or, or just, like I said, they're using good quality um, products, so that's really what I look for. I can't be the only one who has questions. Okay, there's one from two. Great. First one. Hi, I'm sorry, I'm vertically challenged. Um, thank you very much, this is a great event. Uh, so I can relate to all of you. I just moved here with my husband uh, just a few months ago from Tallahassee, Florida, so no from Southern cooking. But I'm a, uh, my formative years were spent in New Jersey as a Jew. Um, so I, I know from schmaltz and stuff like that. Uh, and of course, you grew up in New Jersey, you know Italian food. So um, my question, though, is I'm a dietitian, And I have to reconcile a lot of times my love of traditional foods with my knowledge of what's bad for me. Because you know I come from a long line of people who kill over from heart attacks because we've eaten a traditional East European Jewish diet uh, no offense to the, uh, and I will do my share of eating those foods, but but it's only occasionally. And I'm I'm wondering how you feel about adapting those traditional recipes to make them healthier, and not to say that it's good to use those heavily processed meat substitutes, but in a way that still is wholesome and real. So. Um, that was, I don't know. If, well, we kind of did it on purpose. So when we created our fried chicken plate, one of the things that we did um, is that the greens that we have in the restaurant, we use kale greens. And uh, we don't use collards. Um, we use a really, really, really heavy, thick leafed kale. What's wrong with collards? I'm just no, curious. Nothing's wrong with okay. collards, but the, traditionally in like southern it. food, they get cooked down and yeah. all the nutrients are gone from them. Mm. And so basically you're eating a green mass of nothing that's really healthy. Yeah. And so we decided with the fried chicken plate, if you're gonna eat half a fried bird, and you're gonna have a buttermilk biscuit with sugar on top, and we're gonna give you some honey butter to go with it, that at least let's put something other than a Lipitor on the plate to go <laughs> along with the chicken. So we decided to use this really heavy kale, and we flash cook it. It is in the pan no longer than three minutes, so that uh, when you get it on your plate, it's not devoid of nutrients. We don't, people are like, oh my God, what do you add to all this? And it's literally shallots, salt, pepper, and one tab of butter for a pot of kale that's like humongous. So what's good about the kale is the kale. And people don't realize that. People think we add so much to it and what's really the thing that makes the kale taste good is the actual kale. Um, and so what we try to do is we just try to make sure that for us it is, it is that stereotype of Southern food, that it's heavy, it's greasy, it's this, it's that. We just try to make sure that we have enough things on the menu that offer you options so that you don't have to go straight diabetes medication. So we have you know, the carrots and we try to make sure we use a lot of seasonal food and we make sure that we also try, we change our vegetables with the season too so you're eating in season. Um, you know, when we took fried green tomatoes off the menu um, earlier this year, people just went nuts. And it's like, you can't eat 
tomatoes out of season. We, we just can't even get them. But we try to do that. So we try some way, shape, or form to um, use as many uh, from scratch ingredients, um, as many whole organic ingredients like our grits. Um, we had a lot of trouble finding whole organic uh, corn grits. Um, that were like real grits. I know a guy grits. in Florida. Yeah, yeah. And, and and a lot of people that eat the grits, they're like, this is not grits. And I say, you've grown up eating processed grits. Real grits are like oatmeal. And um, so our, our goal is if we can do that, make the food as unprocessed as possible, at least that's better than it being, you know, a happy meal version of what we're trying to do. I feel like our restaurant is like the cheat day restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> Like there's so many items. People, people all the time are like, "Is there anything healthy I can get there?" I'm like, "Yeah, there's mixed green salad, and <laughs> some kale, kale, greens, kale and some Caesar, green beans. Yeah, there's a few things." Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, what about pizza? I mean, is it? It's a few basic ingredients, but do you ever keep that in mind? I guess. Well, no. I mean, whoa, it's so bright all of a sudden. Um, no, I mean, the Mediterranean diet is very healthy. I mean, that's the thing that is actually kind of frustrating when people say pizza is unhealthy. It's like, well, yeah, round table is unhealthy or some of the other crap that you order. But, you know, we use an organic flour for our crust. You know, all the produce is, is local. I mean, the, you know, it's not unhealthy. So it's, and, you know, if you're not eating, um, you know, cured meats every day, that's, you know, maybe every other day. Um, <laughs> But no, I mean, I think that, like I said, there's this mis misperception that it that it's an unhealthy um, because it's Americanized, where they overdo everything. It's like you know, extra pepperoni and extra cheese, and then they you know, had diet coke on the side, <laughs> and um, you know, drink wine. It's way more. That's <laughs> way healthier for you. Next question. So mine's a little bit of a follow-up to that idea of innovation. So this big move to molecular gastronomy, that whole thing where it looks like a lemon, but it's chopped liver in the middle, and everything is little pearls of things. I mean, both of you have really traditional kind of food that you know has a history, that has warmth, that has you know variety. Are we? Is this tech gone wild, or is this? truly a way to be innovative or you know you know I follow Heston Blumenthal I think it's really fascinating that everything looks like something out of Alice in Wonderland but then again is that what I want to go to every single day and is that what I want to um, have children learn about as part of this you know loving cuisine and cooking and the rest of that I think there's a place for it. I think it's fun to eat that kind of stuff. You know, I, I was, you know, I, I get entertained by it, but is it something I want to eat every day? No. Um, I, I know that's something that, that kind of came out of that and it touches back to the, the tech thing is the uh, 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 immersion circulator. It's a way to cook something. Uh, I worked in a, a very busy restaurant here in Sacramento and they use it to cook, to, to park hook all their meats. So they take you know, if you order a pork chop from this restaurant, they do two packs of these beautiful pork chops. They've been brined, they've been put in a cryovac, they've, they've cooked in a bath to rare. And so when you as a guest come into the restaurant, uh, rather than having to wait 45 minutes to an hour for them to cook this giant pork chop, it takes them 10 minutes. And so there's, you know, there's certain, certain things that came out of, you know, that, that, 
the scientists getting into the kitchen that have that have made things really wonderful for a lot of chefs. All of my friends got sous vide machines for Christmas. I mean, that was like, we all need that. We need to do that because we watched everybody on TV do it. So I, I find it really interesting, but I think, you know, I'm... I'm in fact, I find it fascinating, but then I just really am looking at that balance of where innovation meets good food. I kind of take um, that scientific, um, the men and women that are doing that, to me, I treat it like art. Um, you know, not everybody might have a certain piece of artwork in their house, but they would go to a museum and take a look at it every once in a while. And, um, you know, most people, and are going to go and have maybe the Pottery Barn Ikea artwork in their home, <laughs> but they're going to go pay the extra, you know, the $10 admission fee right. to the Crocker to go see the high fructose show. But they ain't going to put it in the house. Right. So I, I feel like when it comes to molecular gastronomy, it's something that it is, it, and, and I think probably even the mind of the chef is that they're tr they have this, this art piece in their head and they're trying to put it out onto a 12-inch plate. Um, and that's what it is. It's, it's food art and it, and it, it has a place like all art has, but yes, it's unrealistic that you, you, there's no way you can eat that every day. But I do, I do tip my hat to the experience that they're creating where it's this total mind play of you visually see something, you taste something else, what the emotional experience that's created from that because of the confusion in your head of you trying to sort out what you, you're, you know, going through, um, it's not something that I could even want to try to do because I just watching these chefs that that this process that they go through is probably just as rigorous as you know a painter creating these large sculptures or pieces and doing it every single night. I mean that I can only imagine how um, taxing that might be on the creative process, but. Um, I think it's really beautiful what they do. Well, I'll uh, just mention that uh, for the October Food for Thought, uh, it most likely will be uh, chefs. One of them, I can't give too much away because it's confirmed, but he did work at one of these molecular gastronomy places, so a lot of questions for him about that. So next question. Hi, I'm on the wine side of the equation here and live up in Amador County. Um, I started a, um, uh, a box wine business, putting great wine in, in, in boxes. Um, I, I haven't been very successful in the wholesale, trying to get into um, places, so I'm um, in the process of opening up a, uh, a alternative wine um, tasting room in, in Midtown. So I, I'd kind of like some, um, um, some feedback, because I... I'm very rural. I live up in Plymouth, um, but I I actually have a um, I, I've made wine up there in, in, in boxes, which is fantastic. But I also work with a lot of importers, so I've got stuff from France, Spain, and and believe me, the the organic and biodynamic stuff I can get from across the pond is is less money and better than anything that I can make up here. So anyway, um, boxes obviously is good for the environment. Um, um, it's it's astonishing that that um, that still today 65% of all glass is not recycled, 90% um, of plastic isn't. So I'm trying to do a whole grain, working with nonprofits for um, cans, bag in a box, um, etc. 
We, we actually tried, because um, I wanted all of our house wines to be on, on tap, um, but we ended up finding that, that the less expensive sort of house wines were really bad in, in the keg. In order to get like a really good keg wine, you'd have to be really expensive, which kind of defeated the purpose. So yeah, if you're doing you know, a good wine that's affordable and the keg is awesome. Right. Yeah. Say that at the mic again. So you can get great stuff. Um, like two of my wines were made at Vino Nichetto. Um Great Sangiovese, Sangiovese specialist. Um, it's it's like um, two dollars a um, a serving. Um, um, but the stuff from the south of France and and whatnot right. goes down to a dollar a serving. So you, you've got great margin. There's no um, waste. The cool thing about um, boxes versus kegs is that they're smaller. Of course, there's no waste. Right. There's no right. um, anything. And there's also really cool um, machines that do that. But yeah. yeah. Well, no, I mean, you're definitely even ahead of the time, I think, because there was one of our uh, vendors that our, the house red that we use also came in a box. And I was, you know, started, started to order it. And then like, oh, yeah, we, didn't, we don't care anymore. We couldn't sell it. So, and then a lot of the you know stuff that you get sometimes too from Italy or France is not always what they say is in there. So, we we love uh, wine in a box and beer in a can because we go out and take the kids out to the lake, <laughs> and so that's always been a part of our because we you know I've I, I I am a whitewater rafter and I love enjoying our rivers around here, and I refuse to bring any glass product out there because of the impact, and so. I know for Nagina, it's always like, okay, we're going to the lake. And she's like, honey, what do you, do you have packed? And I'm like, uh, okay, I found a great rosé in a box or in a can for you. And, you know, I've got some canned craft beer from a local brewery um, because I think it's awesome. Yeah. And I think it's also our job as restaurateurs to kind of, there, there, there might be a, a myth that goes along with, with boxed or canned stuff that it's not good. And I, I love to explain to guests all the time when they're like, oh, what do you have on draft? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a porter. I'm like, I have an outstanding porter in a can. They're like, oh, but it's in a can. I'm like, but there's no oxygen. It's never been exposed to, you know, light. It hasn't been ruined. It's, it's, it's beautiful, like, because it's in a can. Like, you should trust that, that it's, that it's safe because of the way that the, uh, the brewer decided to, to package it for us. So it's going to taste the way that they want, want it to taste. And I, I feel like the same thing's in a box. So, you know, we, we, it's kind of our responsibility to... to, to to expose guests to this stuff, and once you get it in their glass, then then you know that's the, the that's the hardest part. Just just give it a taste. You don't like it, then we'll get you something different. And as soon as you get it in the glass, they go, "Oh my God, it is great." I'm not gonna lie. Um, packaging and graphic design is important too. I, I'm a I'm that girl that I mean they're I mean look at it now. People are selling rosé in 40 ounces. They weren't doing that shit five years ago. So. Um, when you, a perfect example is like white girl rosé. Like people take pictures with a bottle of wine. Have you seen anybody do that with a bottle of Rombauer? No, you don't. So packaging is so important where I know sometimes you want to be traditional with this and that, but I think with especially when you have something that is a good product and you can't necessarily hand sell it to every customer that you want to get it to. If you have this amazing packaging that's going to get that millennial um, to Instagram it, 
to social media and it tastes great too, let them, they'll, they'll do the work for you. If, if you can get smart packaging that is attractive to the, the people that drink this product um, and it tastes good, they'll end up doing the majority of the work for you. All right, so last call for audience questions. And okay, so we're circling back to the first questioner and then I've got, I've got a one more. So I have a new hat on. I work in workforce development. So I'm trying to understand skill gaps in different uh, cluster areas. In terms of food, I think it's important for any of the youth or those people who are looking to change careers. What are the opportunities in the region? Doesn't mean just opening a restaurant. Doesn't mean managing or creating the business plan for a restaurant. What is the gamut of opportunities that lie along the spectrum of food? And what are we missing in the region? Where the skill gaps lie? I'll jump, I'll jump right out there. Um, we, we've had challenges in hiring um, because there's been times where we said, okay, we want this much experience in the food service industry. And we, at points we even said, like, we want two years fine dining so that you can understand how we're trying to approach the guest and all this stuff. And I, I think what it comes down to is now we're at the point where I would rather just hire somebody that it, when we sit down uh, and interview somebody, like that, I've said to my wife plenty of times, I wanna do the interview at a coffee shop and I wanna sit right by the front door and I wanna see how many times that that person gets up and opens the door for somebody. When there's a woman that's got a stroller that's struggling with the door, if they hop right up and they open the, the door for them, because you can't teach somebody how to be that way, I can teach you how to cut an onion properly, I can teach you how to uh, you know, ring in a glass of wine, but I can't teach you how to be a good person. And so that's been our biggest challenge, I feel like, you know, in the past, is hiring people with all this experience and then, you know, they're a jerk and they, they don't, they don't want to do it, you know, or they're, they're lazy and so. My biggest irritation that I have, and I, this isn't a question about irritation, but when it comes to this gap, um, it's two part. It's one that in high schools we don't have. When I grew up in high school, we had home ec. Everybody learned how to cook. Everybody did. Um, we don't teach trades anymore in high school. Um, it's not an elective. It's not an option. Um, so there are a lot of people that have no idea how to cook. And their, their concept of cooking is watching the Food Network or they're watching... Um, What's the other food channel? Um, uh, oh, the food, yeah. Um, and so they're, they're, uh, they're so wrapped in, if I'm in the food industry, I'm doing it to be a celebrity. I'm trying not to curse. I cannot stand the attitude of being in an industry just for the celebrity of it. It really irritates me because that's not what, what we do is about. We didn't go into this because we were like, okay, we're gonna blow up, we're gonna be hella famous, we're gonna like drive nice cars, everybody's gonna want our autograph everywhere we go. But a lot of people in America and in Sacramento have a real issue with getting their ego out of what they're doing and creating food for the sake of creating food and not creating food because they want to be celebrities. That shit drives me crazy. So that's the gap that we, I can only speak of me and Ian, that we experience is when we try to bring in new people, 
they want to immediately change the menu and put something on it that's totally not even in the avenue that we're creating or they want to showboat and they want to you know uh you know do all this craziness and it's like what are you what are you doing like i it, it's it for me that's what's frustrating is that 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 we don't teach an appreciation of food at a very young level. Food is disposable. You could take two bites, throw it away, whatever. Um, you know, I, I'm a queen of leftovers. It drives me in nuts. I'll eat leftovers for 19 days past the time that we first made it. I have to. It's sketchy. <laughs> I usually have to like hide it into a new dish to get him to eat it. But we come from a culture where you just you can just throw food away. And so we have these young kids growing up and there's not this like really strong appreciation for what food is and what this industry is and what we do and the passion about feeding people. And, and it's all about like, I mean, I know some people that, Honestly, the only reason that they're cooking in Sacramento is so that they can be on a food show. That's really damn sad, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, too, that there's um, an age group that you know, they all got trophies for being in 16th place, or <laughs> they graduated from preschool. <laughs> like, you didn't actually graduate. You didn't do anything yet. Um, so yeah, I mean, people, they want to be managers when they're, you know, their first day on the job and, you know, I'm there and they're cleaning the urinal and they're like, Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? So yeah, I mean, I think there's that, um, for sure that we need to, I, I don't know, when you have a good economy, like everyone has jobs. So it's like, you want two years experience. I'm like, I want your breathing. Perfect. Great. You're hired. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's difficult in this time and, and I, I thought when we went to the Bay Area that oh we have all this great talent pool and, and it's way easier to hire in Sacramento than it is in the Bay. So I have one last question and while I ask it I'm hoping someone will get the raffle bucket uh, so that we have our two pickers over there who've been waiting so patiently to pick the raffle tickets. So I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up with the last question. I think I'm going to ask this of every food for thought panelist cuz I'm wondering what you know in terms of Sacramento's food scene we're we're totally pushing the farm to fork. And uh um what would you love to see added to the food scene that's not here uh either you know that you're not doing <laughs> yet. I mean you're adding obviously your your stamp on it. But what else do you think could be added in terms of maybe better workforce development or different type of cuisine or something, what would you think would be a great addition to Sacramento's food scene? Um, I think for Vinny to open his pasta place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I second that. Is, I that, that. In the, is that in the works? <laughs> no? Okay. So it's a so pipe we, dream, but... Well, we just, I mean, there's, there's restaurants that have, you know, one pasta dish on their menu, which is great, but we don't really have any, like, trattoria or any, like, pasta is not doesn't have to be, you know, twenty dollars for a bowl of pasta. We should be able to get pasta for, you know, eight nine bucks and, and have it be really good and homemade. So good family style pasta. Okay, <laughs> so we'll we'll work on Vinny. Okay, Ian or Najina. Um, what I'd like to see, um, and it's been my biggest. Oh, I'm gonna get ripped for this. It's been my biggest issue with Farm to Fork, and that it's accessible on all levels. Um, I am completely tired and exhausted of the elitism of our farm to fork campaign, where it is only for those that can pay to play. 
And, you know, you look at the water tower that we took, you know, City of Trees and we put Farm to Fork and the area where it's at is literally a food desert. There aren't the same options for fresh food um, made from scratch restaurants in these areas. I'd like to see in suburbia more mom and pop restaurants cooking food from scratch. I'd love to see less chain restaurants in Sacramento. Um, I'm not saying that they don't have a place, believe me. I love me some some Chevys, I really do. (laughs) But that said, it can't be on every other corner. It can't be that the entire block is nothing but chain fed food. Um, It has to be, I mean, I look at you know, schools, the school systems in Sacramento, and they, I'm sorry, they're eating crap. They're eating, our kids are eating crap, and that's okay, and, and I just, you know, the, it, it, that can't be the norm. It just cannot, and I think that it needs to start from the bottom and come up, and it can't be this, let's have a bunch of big, beautiful dinners and events, and the money that we get from those events are used to promote tourism to Sacramento instead of real hardcore food education that is going out to every single corner of corner of this county that's where I'd like to see food happen in Sacramento and all white male chefs exactly. <laughs> <laughs> love you guys but <laughs> Let, how about the white male on this panel have the last word <laughs> You got it, babe. You got it. It's a hard act to follow up right there, huh? <laughs> what do you think, though? Any, any addition or What do I want to see yeah. in Sacramento? I want to see uh, a great sandwich. I'm really simple. I want a great pastrami sandwich. That's it. Um, what are the ingredients to a great pastrami sandwich? Uh, in- incredible rye bread. Uh, I prefer a certain type of mustard, just excellent mustard, and great pastrami, and that's all I need. That's it. Three things. I, I think that there's a beauty in food and in and, and many different types of food from every different culture that are really simple. For me, pizza, all I need is a margarita pizza. I need great mozzarella, great tomato sauce, and a wonderful, wonderful crust. That's it. And that can harmonize and that can sing. Uh, same thing with a taco. I'll go back to my favorites. Um, a sandwich can be the same thing. So that's, that's what I'm really looking forward to, you know to eating and creating. So after the good saint is up, proletariat or whatever. I made Nagina promise no more businesses. I'd really like to actually spend some free time doing things that I love. (laughs) He put me on a three-year moratorium for opening businesses. So I'm not saying that we're not going to open the proletariat in the next like year or two. We're going to do it. (laughs) You heard it here first. Thank you guys very much for the first food for thought. Great discussion, great questions. And thank you all for coming. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Food for Thought conversation was held on July 6, 2017 at the Clara Center for the Performing Arts. Thanks to Andrea Lapour of Hot Italian and Ingina and Ian Kavukian for agreeing to be the guinea pigs for our new conversation series. Thanks also to Clara for hosting the event and to J.E. Pano and Roostaller Beer for their continued support. And free beer. 
A special thanks to the California Groundbreakers Advisory Board for helping to put this event together. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Bye.